Welcome to the Lessons for Living television program. My name is Bill Santos. Thank you so much for watching. There are two kinds of unbelief. There is the unbelief of the searching heart, you know, the heart that is unbelieving only because it hasn't heard the truth. And then there is what we call close-minded, willful, truth-rejecting unbelief. For the honest heart that says, you know, I'm willing to believe if I can see the truth, then God reveals truth. To him that says, I don't want the truth, I reject evidence, I am willfully ignorant, I am st statically unbelieving, to them God has nothing to say. Now that's the kind of unbelief we see in John chapter 9. In the first 12 verses, you have the miracle of Jesus healing the man who was born blind. Now, following that, we have the investigation as the Pharisees try to figure out what happened when Jesus made this man to see. And as we go through that, we're going to see the characteristics of this willful unbelief as it unfolds before our very eyes. Now, in one of our previous programs, we studied the healing as Jesus gives sight to the man born blind. He put clay on his eyes, if you recall, mixed with saliva, told him to go wash in the pool, and the man obeyed, and he received his sight. Now, if you recall, he then immediately sets out to meet with his neighbors, and when he gets there, they're astounded. They're astounded because here was the blind man, but now he has sight. Well, they grabbed the man and they whisked him off to the Pharisees. And that's where we're going to begin our study today. See, as the neighbors have the blind man, they now escort him to the Pharisees. Now, as I studied this, I began to wonder in my mind why the Holy Spirit designed to take a whole chapter on this little dialogue. Why did he bother with this investigation of the Pharisees? That really goes nowhere. I'm kind of twofold answer. Number one, I believe this shows us this character of willful unbelief. I have no doubts from now on what willful unbelief really is like, because it's right here in front of us, how it operates. And from now on, when you go to witness for Jesus Christ to share your faith, you're going to find out that when you meet this kind of unbelief, it will be classified for you just immediately because you will be able to reflect on what you learned here in John chapter 9. This is a very important chapter. Now, the second reason I believe why it's here is not only to declare unbelief's characteristics, but secondly, this becomes the first division, the first great fractioning between the synagogue and Christ's new organization that would soon be called his church. And so once again, I believe it's a very important passage. Now, as we study this, I want to show you five characteristics of this willful unbelief. These five 
render an unbeliever incompetent to judge a divine miracle. Now, I'm going to say that again because it's important. These characteristics of unbelief make an unbeliever incompetent to evaluate God's acts. Since when can an unbelieving, willfully ignorant individual come and competently judge the activity of a God that he or she doesn't even believe in? That's exactly what you have here. Investigating of a miracle, but from the standpoint of unbelief. Now, I want to show you these five things, these five characteristics of this willful unbelief. Number one, unbelief sets false standards. And these are universal. They operate even until today. Number two, unbelief always wants more evidence, but never gets enough evidence. Number three, unbelief does biased research that is purely subjective. Number four, unbelief rejects the facts. And number five, unbelief is totally egocentric. Now, first of all, notice this. Unbelief sets false standards. Now, as we pick up the narrative, the neighbors have brought the blind man to the Pharisees, and this is where the trouble begins. So let's make our way to John chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading down there at verse 13. Here's what it says. They brought to the Pharisees him that was formerly blind. Now, the Pharisees were a sect in Israel, and they were very legalistic. They were oriented around the law of Moses. In fact, they added and added and added to the law of Moses until they had built up a legalistic system and it had just become bondage over them. And they tried to push this legalistic bondage on the people of Israel as well. Now, it's very likely that they brought this blind man to the Pharisees after the Sabbath. You see, the miracle had occurred on the Sabbath, and we'll go into that. That's a bit of a problem. But they brought him to the Pharisees likely after the Sabbath because the Pharisees would not have been convening on the Sabbath. That would have broken every standard that they had. So it's very likely that it's a day or so later, and they bring the former blind man to the Pharisees. Now, the question arises immediately, why would they bring the blind man to the Pharisees in the first place? Well, the people were so afraid of the Pharisees that I doubt that they would have ever wanted to have any direct confrontation with them. They would have been afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. In fact, if you jump down to verse 22, here's what it says. It says right there, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So you see that. So anyone that said that this was the Messiah would be thrown out of the synagogue. And I don't think they were about to put themselves on that spot. So it's very likely, it's unlikely that they were trying to corner the Pharisees. I believe 
they knew this miracle had happened on the Sabbath, and they knew how the Pharisees dealt with people who violated the Sabbath. And so, you know, they're bringing this blind man for the sake of letting the Pharisees now do what they would do with someone who broke the Sabbath. It says nowhere in the Bible that these neighbors were defenders of Jesus at all. And so I'm convinced that they were probably part of the mainstream of Israel and they would have never wanted to bring him to confront the Pharisees, but rather to agree with them because they were afraid of the Pharisees. And I think that's doubly indicated by the character of verse 14, which immediately jumps in and says, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opens his eyes. So it seems to me that the Sabbath day was the issue. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. So evidently they had asked him before and his neighbors had asked him back in verse 8. And he had said to them a very simple answer. Verse 15. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed, and I see. A terrific answer. Just a plain, simple, you know, I was there, he put clay on my eyes, I washed it off, and now I can see. It doesn't give us a whole lot of information about how it happened in terms of the power. It, but isn't it interesting that they ask him this question again? The question had already been asked. They don't care about the man. They don't want to hear him. They don't say, oh, isn't it wonderful that you can see now after all these years? They could care less about him. They don't care one thing about that blind man. They're after Jesus because they hate him. And so the Pharisees begin their investigation. And they have a false standard their standard is, well, first of all, we could start this investigation by saying he did this, he did it on the Sabbath, and if he did it on the Sabbath, well, he's not of God because God's people don't break the Sabbath. See, that's their false standard. Unbelief always has a false standard. Look at verse 16. It says, Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keeps not the Sabbath day. So they start their investigation with that bias, with that false standard. That's the way unbelief is. Always false standards. He couldn't be of God because he doesn't qualify. But who set the standards? They did. And that's backwards, folks. That's backwards. But I like what happens now. You see, some of the Pharisees are pretty sharp. Some of the Pharisees disagreed. Look at verse 16 in the middle. It says, But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. But others said, This is kind of like group B. Right? They said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? 
there was division among them. Every time you see division in the New Testament, it is a good thing. It's terrific, except in the letters to the churches, then it's a bad thing. But in the gospel, it's a good thing because it means someone is cutting loose from the world and is becoming attached to Jesus Christ. And that's good. You see, some of them began to say, hey, 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 wait a minute. Jesus opened the eyes of a man that was born blind. Conclusion, Jesus must be from God. But group A, they're unmoved. Group A is unmoved. Group A doesn't even listen. They don't even hear. To them, Jesus is a fake. They don't want to hear something else. And the, the division stands and holds. And the rest of this passage is group A trying to prove to themselves and group B and, and everyone else that they're right. They're trying to prove that Jesus is a fraud and no miracle worker at all. So they start out with this false standard. He couldn't be from God because he did it on the Sabbath. And you don't break the Sabbath if you're from God. Now, the second character of, uh, characteristic of unbelief, unbelief wants more evidence. But it, it, it's an interesting thing about unbelief. It always wants more evidence, but it never has enough evidence, right? Never gets enough. The blind man had just told them exactly what happened. And there is the proof literally staring them in the face. But it is the nature of this determined, willful unbelief that it always wants more evidence, but it never has enough evidence. That's the difference between the willing heart that's seeking to know the truth, that kind of unbelief that wants to believe, but they had no capacity for that, and so they demand more. Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Is he a prophet? They say, so what's your evaluation there, blind beggar? It's pretty obvious. He's a prophet. So this guy, I like him even better now. He's got a little character, right? He's got some courage. He's going to stand up to them and say that this man is a prophet. He knows that the Sanhedrin has declared in verse 22, right, they, that whoever comes out and says that Jesus is the Messiah will be put out of the synagogue. He's aware of that. He knows that. But his own heart has been convinced. And even though he tells them the truth, and even though he gives them the evidence they want, their brains cannot shift. There's no belief gear. You know, they can't shift into belief. It just isn't there. They are statically lost in their unbelief. And so they hear the evidence, but they attempt to find the fakery, like rather than believe the truth. Then the progression of their ignorance is all through this chapter. Now, you'll notice also verse 18. It says... But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him 
that had received his sight. So they're like, listen, we can't accept the evidence just from you, you see? Right? That's unbelief, right? We've got to have more evidence. So the blind man gives them the evidence. That's not enough evidence. We've got to have more. So let's go get the parents. Interesting thing is they weren't looking for truth at all because they already knew truth. They already knew everything. What they were looking for was support for their already made conclusions. Unbelief always wants more evidence but never has enough. Now, the third characteristic of unbelief is that unbelief does biased research. It not only sets its own standards, which are false, but it wants more and more evidence and never gets enough, but it also does biased subjective research. When unbelief investigates a miracle, you could present all the facts, all the evidence, and still the conclusion will be what it was before they began the investigation because it's subjective. We want to do the research. Verse 19, the parents are there. So they ask them, is this your son you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Oh, you've only heard it about five times, right? This, is this the man? Is this the one that was born blind? Second question, how did he get his sight? Well, the parents ask, answer question number one. Now, here's more evidence. They wanted more evidence. Verse 20. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. See, that guy right there, that's him. But when it comes to the second question, these parents now make the biggest cop-out. Look at verse 21. By what means he now sees, we know not. Well, that's a lie. This man certainly told his parents what happened. We know that. Right? They, he's of age. Ask him. You know, he should speak for himself. Verse 22 right? You want to know why they lied? Verse 22 tells us, look at this. It says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. See, wonderful parents these are, aren't they? Right? Really standing up for their son. They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. Right? It, it was a very serious thing to be cut out from the life of Israel. And so they're hiding behind their lies because they're afraid. And so they ask. They ask him, verse 23. You see it again. It says, look, therefore, said his parents, he is of age. Ask him. Well, now they've got evidence. They know this is the right child. They know he can see. They know Jesus put clay on his eyes. They know he went to the pool. They know he washed his eyes. They know he came out there and now he can see. They know all the evidence there is to know. And they're going to take all of those facts and do their research now. Now watch the conclusion, verse 24. 
So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So they say, well, okay, we've taken all the facts into account. We've done all of our research. Give God praise because we know Jesus is a sinner. That's the way it is with unbelief. Unbelief exposed to all the facts and all of the evidence comes up with unbelief. That's the way it is. So unbelief sets false standards, wants more evidence but never gets enough, and then it does its research, but it's biased, subjected research, which comes to no conclusion, but which was the conclusion before the research began. The fourth thing, and very obvious, unbelief rejects the facts. Facts mean nothing to unbelief. It has no capacity to accept them. Look at verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. You know, the Pharisees are saying, he is a sinner. And the blind man says, I don't know about that. But one thing I do know is that I used to be blind. And now I can see. So it's like he puts his I know against their we know. And now they're lost. There's no argument left. What are they going to say now? There's all the evidence. There's nothing to do. So you know what they do? They fall to the low levels of conflict. Look at verses 26 and 27. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And here they are at the bottom, verse 28. They don't know what to say to this man. This man, this blind beggar has defeated them. And it says, verse 28, and they reviled him. They started cursing at him. Look at verse 29. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. To protect their ego, they lash out at Jesus and they lash out at the beggar and they convince themselves in a self-satisfied egoism that the facts don't matter. They're irrelevant. What matters is, We're disciples of Moses, and we know these things. Now, the blind man adds a shot here at the end that is devastating in verse 30. Look at what it says. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. What a terrific statement. So, Unbelief sets its standards falsely, always wants more evidence and never gets enough, has no capacity for faith. You know something? To an unbelieving mind, you can present all the pure evidence in the world and it will still be unbelieving because unbelief cannot be won by evidence. 
It can only be won by a divine miracle from God to change that heart. My friend, listen, Jesus is Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. A blind beggar saw it. A blind beggar saw that which the religious leaders of Israel didn't. How about you? Have you seen who Jesus really is? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for teaching us through your word, your truth. And Lord, if there are some watching who have never invited this Christ into their lives, who have never opened their heart to understand and know him, that they might do it right now. Father, as we close our program, we pray that you'll move by your spirit upon hearts, that we might recognize Christ in all his glory and that people might give him their lives and receive him as Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've come to that time in the program that we refer to as the book offer. On every program, we like to make a resource available to you. In today's program, we've been talking about unbelief. And so we have secured a special edition of the Signs of the Times magazine called uh, The Benefits of Belief. And we'd love to send you this uh, magazine as a gift from Lessons for Living Television. There's no cost whatsoever on your part. There's no, you know, there's nothing for you to do, but request it. How can you request it? Well, pay close attention to the information we're about to provide you. To receive today's free offer, you can log on to the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. That's the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. You can also write us at Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G0A3. And we would be happy to send the offer out to you. That's Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G0A3. If you live in Canada, this offer will be sent out to you free and postage paid. For viewers living outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you wish, you can order this offer by calling our 1-800 number and speaking with one of our volunteers at 1-800-972-0337. 1-800-972-0337. Well, we've come to the end of another Lessons for Living television program. Thank you so much for watching. Before we go, I want to remind you of a few things. First, our website, l4ltv.com. On the website, you have access to all of our previous programs. Uh, you can uh, download uh, certain messages that we have. That we have something called Archive Sermons, which is a video and then a, a, a PDF file you can download as a study guide. Check that out. You can go to the Donate Today page and make a donation if you feel so impressed to do so. We are a charitable organization. You will, your donation will be eligible for a receipt for income tax purposes. Check out uh, Instagram, Santos underscore Bill. Every morning, 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, I put out a devotional video. Great way to get your day started, focusing on things of heaven. Uh, follow us on um, Facebook. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Download our program from SoundCloud. And follow us on X, 
Santos underscore Bill. We are all out of time. Thank you again for watching. We hope that you will be with us again next time. Until then, God bless you. We look forward to seeing you back here again.